The Mystery File Collective is intended for mature audiences. The following content may contain material that some people find triggering. If you feel disturbed by tales of murder, mystery, or myth, if you believe that they could traumatize you, we implore you to use your discretion before listening. The Mysterious Dream Diary of Michael Cody Part 3 In parts one and two of this episode, we heard about the ancient art of aniromancy, divination based on dreams, and questioned whether it was possible to dream of the future before it happened. We looked at the dream diary of Michael Cody, a 12-year-old boy who witnessed some of the BTK murders before they happened. In part three, we will hear what happened to Michael Cody and his family, how the dreams affected his future, explore the psychological effects on the boy who would grow into a man as the dreams continued with devastating consequences. So let's pick up where we left part two of the mysterious dream diary of Michael Cody. At the local sheriff's office, Mrs. Cody and her son were greeted with narrow-minded skepticism, just as Dr. Levington had predicted. The story of the missing cat leaflet, the Otero murders, and this new set of murders. The people that they claimed were in trouble, the people without a name or an address. They were nothing at all. The story of a boy that dreamed of murder. And these dreams, these murders had come true, or were about to come true, was given very little credence. Mrs. Cody was told by the sheriff, as the psychiatrist had warned her, to go home and stop wasting law enforcement's time. Take young Nostradamus home, give him some warm milk, watch some TV, read a book, have an early night. There was nothing they could do with this child's diary. It was a half-baked story, and they had better things to do. If the diary was true, all they could do was wait. There was too little detail. And that is what they did. They waited. There was nothing on the news that evening. No murders. No further elements of the dream recorded in the diary coming true. The dream both Michael Cody and his mother felt was destined 
to come true. But they didn't have to wait long. The next day, April 4th, 1974. It was evening time when it appeared on the news. The town, the same as the Oteros, Wichita, Kansas. An intruder had entered the home of Catherine Bright, 22. She was with her brother, Kevin Bright at the time. A young, slightly built man, aged just 19. The intruder had entered through the back, smashing through the screen door, then the back door, strangely clearing up the smashed glass, just as Michael Cody had recorded in the dream. He accosted them both as they entered the house, emerging from the shadows, confronting them with a gun, again, exactly as Michael Cody had recorded in the dream. He had tied them both in separate rooms and tried to murder them. The man first, then the woman. There had been a struggle. The Brights didn't go down without a fight. Though tied and bound, Kevin Bright had escaped his bindings and fought back hard. He had been shot in the head twice just as Michael had recorded in his dream. Despite this, he had fought back with everything he had and eventually escaped. His sister had not been so lucky. She received multiple stab wounds to her abdomen and though alive when the police arrived. Tragically, she later died of her wounds in hospital. The next day, Mrs. Cody made a visit to the local sheriff, taking with her the dream diary. She barged her way into the sheriff's office and threw down the diary she had taken the day before. Have you seen the news? She asked. The murder of Catherine Bright. The attempted murder of her brother, Wichita, Kansas. The number 3217. Now do you believe? She said, her face alive and impassioned. The sheriff was ashen-faced, and he silently gave the diary a second look, before quickly shutting it tight, looking her coldly in the eye, and telling her sternly to go home. Police business was serious business and there was no time for this sort of nonsense. A young woman had been brutally murdered, and this wasn't a game. He told her that he'd submitted her report to Kansas State Police, and they may well share it with the FBI. It's up to them what they choose to do with this, and before she could protest, the sheriff's expression darkened. He looked at her coldly and with some authority told her to go home. 
Mrs. Cody left the sheriff's office, feeling distinctly unlistened to and unheard. Michael Cody apparently withdrew deep into himself in the passing weeks. Having some knowledge or understanding of horrific events before they happened, but not enough to stop them from happening or to save those poor people involved. No way of saving the lives that have been cut short by this brutal evil. The lack of help he fell from the police was the cruelest blow of all. Indeed, there was no further follow-up from the police for several months. The Cody family had decided to discontinue their engagement with Dr. Levington, deeming him unable and inequipped to help their family and their son. And perhaps that was a good thing, for young Michael Cody had no more nightmares, at least for some time. None that woke the house with screams of terror. None that he expressed in any way. No more nightmares for a while. Why? Nobody knows. Perhaps it was because the killer who inhabited his dreams did not kill again for almost three years. And so, perhaps, the psychic link between the child and the killer had been broken. Nobody knows for sure. What we do know for certain is that the killer of Catherine Bright and the killer of the Otero family was the same man. These two sets of murders were the first killings of a notorious and evil serial killer who would later become known to the world as B.T.K. Bind, torture, kill. The killer's name was Dennis Rader, and he would remain at large, terrorizing the town of Wichita, Kansas for 30 years taunting the police and the town through a series of communications to the press. However, back in March 1974, nobody was looking for a serial killer from Wichita. The police at the time had not connected the Catherine and Kevin Bright crimes to the Otero murders as the M.O. of the killer was to them not similar at all. Nobody really knew who BTK was or that he was responsible for both the murders of the Otero family and Catherine Bright and the attempted murder of her brother, Kevin Bright, who, just as it had happened in Michael Cody's dream, fought hard against the killer and escaped with his life that day. In a later twist, in October 1974, three men confessed to the murders of the Otero family. However, two people in the world 
knew that the three men were lying. The killer himself, Dennis Rader, and Michael Cody, the boy who dreamed the first two sets of killings. Indeed, Dennis Rader, the killer who would later become known to the world as BTK, was infuriated that the three men had confessed to the Otero murders and were taking credit for his despicably evil crimes. So much so, he wrote a letter describing his crimes with intimate details of how he left the bodies to prove that he was the killer. He placed this letter in the city library. He then called the local paper telling them that he was the killer of the Otero family, and he can prove it. He has written a letter with details of the crime that only he and the killer could know. Leaving the letter in a specific place, between two books in the city library, to be collected by the journalist. The newspaper contacted the police, and the letter was intercepted by an officer who trembled as he read. Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself and with no one's help. Josephine hanging by the neck in the northwest part of the basement. Hands tied with bind cord. Feet with clothesline cord. Noose with four or five turns. Her glasses in the southwest bedroom. When this monster enters my brain, I will never know. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He has already chosen his next victim or victims. Good luck hunting. The code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them, be tea. They will be on the next victim. Only the author of this letter and the police knew the horrific details described in it. Only the author of this letter could be the killer. And Michael Cody's dreams had spared him the fate of the Otero children. He hadn't seen the final, depraved, evil acts of murder. He'd already awoken from the dream, thankfully. But what he did know, he felt certain for sure, is that the murders were the work of one man and not three. And the same man killed Catherine Bright, as well as the Oteros. It was in the weeks following the discovery of this letter from Dennis Rader, 
November 1974, that the Cody family received a visit from the FBI. Two agents appeared at her door one late afternoon. A guy called Ron Henderson, a red-haired man aged roughly 40. Mrs. Cody doesn't remember much about the other. They claim to have read a report on the dream diary connected to the murders in Wichita and filed by their local sheriff's office, shared with Kansas State Police. They were interested in the diary's content. Mrs. Cody gladly invited them inside and gave the FBI the diary to read. The agents read the diary presented to them, seemingly fascinated by the two diary accounts of murder inside, making sure to determine that the entries had happened before the murders took place and that the family were 100% sure on this. Mrs. Cody informed them that the second set of crimes in the diary were entered roughly two weeks before the crime. The first set, the Otero murders, they were entered afterwards to get it out of her son's psyche, as his psychiatrist had suggested. The agents read the diary a couple of times and listened a lot to Mrs. Cody's version of events. They asked to keep the diary for analysis, but Mrs. Cody refused. She wanted to keep it herself, wisely fearing that she would never see it again. They asked to photograph it for their records, and she obliged. No harm in that. She wanted to help, to help them catch this killer. She just didn't want to see the diary leave the house, if possible. Finally, the FBI asked to speak to the child, the young dreamer himself. Mrs. Cody agreed. She went up to Michael's room and told him that the FBI were downstairs and would like to ask a few questions. She thought that he should, and he agreed, nodding silently. But the questions the FBI were asking were not the questions she anticipated. They never asked the boy to recount the dreams as she imagined they would. They seemed quite content with the content of the diary being accurate enough. They merely wanted to know three things from the child. One, had he really dreamed the things recorded in the diary before they happened? Yes, Michael nodded solemnly. Had he had any more dreams of murder that he hadn't written down? No. Michael replied, shaking his head. Finally, the FBI asked the boy, how many committed these crimes? The Otero murders? One, or more than one? One person? Michael said confidently, and the same person killed Catherine Bright.
The FBI agents nodded silently, saying nothing in response. Before thanking the family for their time and cooperation, and with that, they got up to leave. Mrs. Coley asked quietly, Do you think you'll catch this terrible man that did these things? To which they replied something along the lines of, We will do our best. However, at this moment in time, the two incidents in your child's dreams are not necessarily linked. They thanked Mrs. Cody again and asked to be informed of any more dreams the boy may have, requesting that they keep recording anything of that nature. And the Codys never heard from the FBI again. Michael Cody didn't have any more BTK premonitions. Why they started and why they ended is a mystery. However, BTK didn't kill again for another three years. And the family believe that during this three year period in which the serial killer went dark, the psychic link between Michael Cody and the killer was broken it even began and how we will never know for sure it is simply unexplainable how Michael Cody was able to step into the mind of a killer and witness his horrific crimes from the killer's point of view is simply a mystery how could a 12 year old child be witnessing these things before they happened and seeing it all through the eyes of the killer. It is a mystery that will never be explained. The family believe it may well have been a message to Michael that one day he too would be the victim of murder and the proof of it will be in his dreams. He must take heed. For while the 12-year-old boy had no more dreams of Dennis Rader, he did have more dreams of a different nature. It was the spring of 1975, when Michael Cody was just 13 years of age, when he had what would be the first of a series of recurring, murderous, bad dreams. These dreams are not as rich in detail, but would always be the same, exactly the same, never adding to the detail of the crime that he sees. There would be no embellishment, almost like a pre-recorded scene in a film played over and over again. In this dream, a young man is executed with a single gunshot to the forehead. Again, Michael Cody witnesses everything from the point of view of the killer. It is daylight. The air is crisp and cold. He is walking in a remote forest, a dense, thick, forest pine. 
killer has a gun and is walking a smartly dressed young man in front of him at gunpoint. The man's arms are tied in front of him quite tightly. Upon reaching a certain spot, the killer tells the man in front of him to stop and kneel down. Breathing out heavily, he kneels. The killer steps around to the front of the man, asking him to look up so that he can see his face. The young man looks up and Michael Cody recognizes the man's face, but he is not sure why. The man kneeling before him feels incredibly familiar, clean-shaven, bright blue eyes, fair hair. He looks directly at the killer and he says, It's okay. I knew that you would do this. You have my pity and my forgiveness. The killer seems confused for a moment. It's not the response the killer wants or is expecting. A single gunshot rings out and the young man kneeling before him falls dead. Michael Cody wakes. In contrast to the other dreams, Michael Cody doesn't wake screaming. He is frightened, confused, his heart is racing, but he isn't consumed by horror. More curiosity. His thoughts questioning again and again the identity of the victim whose face he seems to recognize. Someone in his life he knows, perhaps. He told his mom about the dream. She was his confidant and defender, always have been, always will be. But he told her not to tell anyone else. He feared what would happen. He didn't want to go through the humiliation of people studying his dreams again. Police, FBI, doctors. He wished it would all just go away. His mother understood. She reassured him as best she could, telling her son that if there is an opportunity to maybe save a life, they should do whatever it takes, as hard as it might be for him. And that was what God would want them to do. She asked him to record the dream in his diary, like the others, and dated. The family held their breath, fearing the terrifying dreams of murder were about to start to come true once more. That someone, somewhere, soon, would be murdered.
Mrs. Cody read her child's latest diary entry repeatedly as she had the others, noting that there was a difference in tone, noting that there was no symbol, no dream token, no auspicious warning. The entry was very different indeed, very sparse in detail in comparison to the two that had gone before. However, she still felt obliged to contact Agent Henderson from the FBI as he had requested. But the phone call did not go as she expected. The agent didn't seem that interested any longer, to the point of being almost dismissive of the dream diary, to the point that she regretted making the call. Yet still, the family believed something was going to happen soon. There would be another murder coming, because Michael's previous nightmares of murder had all come true. And yet there was something very different about this dream. This latest entry in the dream diary was devoid of all detail. It was a simple snapshot of murder, thoroughly lacking in detail. So much so that they felt they couldn't risk the embarrassment they felt the last time they visited the sheriff, or even Dr. Levington. Mrs. Cody knew that this new dream entry into the diary would be dismissed, too shallow in detail and she was fearful of making a spectacle out of her son. He had already voiced his fears of feeling humiliated, exposed. She could see that he was struggling daily, pretty much since the day the nightmares began, avoiding company and becoming very introspective and withdrawn. All the family could do was to sit and wait for murder. And so they waited. They watched the news reports and read daily newspapers for any story that this new dream might fit into, for their gut instinct told them that it eventually would come true. But it never occurred, and after a while, they began to feel that maybe this dream was just that, a dream, with no echo of reality at all. A child's nightmare, albeit a nightmare that would not go away, recurring throughout young Michael Cody's life, presenting the family with a new dilemma as the boy developed a new obsession. His mind became preoccupied with the face of the victim. The face that he recognized, that he somehow knew. But from where? Who was the victim? Why was he so familiar? The 
dream would return frequently from the age of 13 onwards. The face of the mysteriously familiar victim, haunting young Michael in his waking hours. A face he began to sketch at home. There are literally hundreds of these drawings in a drawer in the family home. For years, the dream would resurface. The victim always the same. The face familiar and yet strange. Until it became too obvious to ignore. The face of the victim was the face of Michael Cody himself. As a man. The face that the child would grow into as he grew up. The face of the murder victim was Michael Cody himself. Was he dreaming his own death? His own murder? And what was truly baffling was the fact that he was witnessing his own murder through the eyes of the murderer. In the dream, he was, in effect, both the murderer and the murdered himself, killing himself. which posed the question for the family. Was this a murderous dream akin to the BTK murder dreams that would eventually come true? Or was it the psychological toll the child had taken during the first series of horrifically traumatizing murderous dreams? Psychological trauma played out in a recurring dream himself inhabiting the point of view of a killer, murdering himself. It would be impossible for this dream to come true, as the others had. It would be impossible. Yet Michael Cody was determined to separate himself as much as possible from the victim in the dream, the face that he had grown into, the face that he had dreamed of as a child. As soon as he was old enough, he grew a beard. The facial hair an attempt at marking his features different to the clean-shaven features of the murder victim in his dream. The face he had obsessed over, had sketched hundreds of times for many years. The face he would eventually grow into. The year is now 1981. And Michael Cody is 18 years of age. He'd grown a beard. In his heart, he believed that by keeping a beard, he can never have the same face as the clean-cut, handsome young man in the dream that he felt was destined to be murdered. At this time, the BTK killer, Dennis Rader, is still on the loose. He's occasional big news in the neighboring state. Although he had not claimed a victim since 1977, after the police had made his profile as a serial killer public on a news channel, ripples of fear would reverberate beyond the state of Kansas. 
and the family always felt the case was too difficult to avoid and all too painful. Whenever there was a new story, it carried extra weight and significance for them. Worse still, the family feared that because Michael Cody's earlier dreams had psychically connected Michael with the killer BTK, that it was always possible that their son, perhaps even the whole family, was somehow destined to meet the killer at some point in time. There was nothing that could be deemed irrational with so much mystery in their life that was unable to be explained. Any explanation is possible. There was no plausible explanation as to why Michael Cody saw these killings in a dream before they happened. It could only be that perhaps BTK was part of their life somehow. As rational or irrational a concept as that was, it did not matter. The family made the decision to escape the Midwest, to move, to flee Oklahoma and get as far away from Kansas and the town of Wichita as possible. Michael Cody's father applied for a job transfer within the same company, but a different part of the world. London, Ontario, Canada. And in the winter of 1980, the family made the move. It would be a new start for them all, for Michael especially, who had grown into a very sullen young man, intense, withdrawn, introspective, with very little ambition or aspiration. They wanted to get away from the murderous news reports from Wichita, Kansas. The speculation on the identity of the killer, because, in truth, the murderous dreams that started to come true way back in 1974 had changed the person inside Michael Cody, causing uncountable damage from the age of 12. From the moment the nightmares began, he had never been the same. The move to Canada was seen as a fresh start for everyone, but most importantly, for Michael. And things went well, for a time. Michael joined a church with an active youth group and social spiritual program. Bible study and socials brought him some close new friends. And this is where he first met his soon-to-be fiancée. Despite his long beard and hair, she was attracted to Michael's thoughtful, introspective nature. He was quiet, and he was kind, and she liked that. However, it soon became apparent that still waters run very deep indeed. Michael had no job, nor any intention to apply to college or further his education. He was ambitionless, lacking in aspiration, yet still strangely likable. 
intelligent, sensitive, but lacking in confidence. Her father took a real shine to Michael. He took him under his wing. He was an executive in a bank in the city, and so he pulled a few strings for the directionless but likeable and intelligent young man that he could see lurking behind that big beard and hair. And so, he arranged an opportunity for him at the bank that he was working at, arranging a job interview, a potential career in the city. He would be a certainty for the job, his father-in-law-to-be being one of the bank's executives. However, there would be a catch. Michael Cody would have to smarten up his act. Clean-shaven. Clean-cut. I'm told Michael Cody was initially reticent knowing that he would have to shave the beard, cut the hair, appear responsible, appear like the image of the murder victim, the face that he had grown into, the face that he had been dreaming about since the age of 13. He shared his fears with his mum, and she called a family meeting. The family remember the discussion well, they talked him through the recurring dream that he had been having since he was 13. The dream in which a man, the image of himself, is kneeling before a killer with a gun and is executed. However, he was witnessing the murder of himself through the eyes of the killer holding the gun of the killer, shooting a version of himself in the head, and watching that version of himself die. It was, in essence, a dream in which Michael Cody was murdering a version of himself. After a thorough discussion, the family agreed this dream, recurring though it was, wasn't like the other initial dreams of murder. In fact, the dream could almost be construed to be self-murder. He was, after all, seeing a clean-cut version of himself being murdered by himself through the eyes of a killer with a face that he could not see. And perhaps the message was that he was murdering his own potential by staying hidden away behind the big beard and the long hair. Was he actually murdering the clean-cut young man inside? The young man with hopes and aspirations who deserved an opportunity at life. A young man with his entire future before him. The family urged Michael Cody to think hard. 
doesn't that young man deserve a chance at life? The real Michael Cody. Isn't it time to let him live and be free of the fear of these dreams? Michael Cody thought hard about this. Was it possible that fear is what the killer truly was? And the possession of that fear was murdering his youthful potential? Was this the message? The warning all along? It all suddenly made sense to him. To all of them. Wasn't it time to stop running away from these dreams that he had been afflicted by since the age of 13? Wasn't it time to fulfill his potential and meet life head on? They all agreed. They all believed it was time to stop running away from the nightmares. Michael Cody felt happy that night. He felt like God had blessed him. He slept well. That week, his girlfriend took him shopping, bought him a suit, then took him to the barbers for a haircut and a shave. The face in the mirror brought tears to Michael Cody's eyes. He was the image of the man he'd seen murdered in his dream so many times. The image of the man he'd seen murdered in a recurring dream since the age of 13. He had sketched this face so many times. And now it was looking back at him. In the mirror. And in these dreams, he must remember that he himself had pulled the trigger as the killer. Wasn't it time to let himself live? He smiled to himself. Was it possible that he had been murdering his potential all along? Killing the potential inside himself. And this was the dream's true meaning. He felt sure it was. The following morning, Michael Cody got up early to get ready for what he was sure would be a special day in his life. He showered and shaved, put on his new suit and smart shoes, and headed out to catch the bus to the city centre for his interview. His mother remembers his smile as he left his beaming smile that filled his eyes, his entire face. It was a smile that had been hidden away since the nightmares began. She watched him leave, a tear coming to her eye. She was proud of a smartly dressed, clean-cut young man, proud of him for the trauma he had survived, for coming through all that anguish, for coming through so much.
when he didn't return home that evening. She presumed that he had gone to his girlfriend's house to share the news of the interview with her, with her parents, who had set up this opportunity. She hoped that it went well and that they were celebrating. At 8pm that evening, there was a knock at the door. She answered excitedly, hoping to hear her son's news. However, it wasn't Michael at the door, but his fiancé's father. He turned up at the Cody residence to see if everything was okay. Michael hadn't turned up to his interview, and he wanted to know if there was a problem. Mrs. Cody remembers that prickling feeling running across her scalp, her blood turning to ice, the twisting in her gut. She knew something was badly wrong. Michael Cody has not been seen since by anyone. It's like he disappeared off the face of the earth that day. His mother, the last known person to see him alive, as she waved goodbye to that smiling face she loved and cherished all his life. The child that she had done everything to protect. To this day, Michael Cody is listed as a missing person. Nobody has seen him since. There have been no witness sightings from that day or beyond. No leads to solve his disappearance or solve the mystery of what happened to Michael Cody. He simply vanished, officially missing presumed dead. His family believed